What's going on guys, it's your man with the plan, Samuel Plan, coming back at you once again with another brand new installment of Sports Entertainment is Dead right here on Lords of Pain Radio. Thanks for tuning in guys, if you missed last week's episode you can still go catch that on demand, the way to do it is very simple, head over to Spreaker, head over to lordsofpain.net and you can catch my last episode of SCID on demand, you can also do it through your usual podcast provider as well. Please also make sure you check out all the other great shows here on Lords of Pain Radio. We have stuff coming to you each and every single day of the week, covering everything from New Japan Pro Wrestling, Ring of Honor, TNA, Indie Circuits, British Wrestling, you name it, we've got coverage for it. So do make sure you check out all the wonderful shows. You can do so by subscribing. Don't subscribe to Lords of Pain Radio, but do subscribe to each of our shows by their individual name, and that way you can make sure you don't miss a second of the great coverage we've got for you here on Lords of Pain Radio. It is another week in my ongoing project for Sports Entertainment is Dead Year 2. If, of course, you're unfamiliar with it, and this is the first time you're tuning in, I take a guest host every single week and we explore a match chosen quite at random historically either by myself or said guest to explore the themes, the creative merits, the character, the narrative, its historical importance, anything that we think is worth commenting on. It's all inspired by my book 101 WW Matches to See Before You Die which you can still go ahead and buy on Amazon anywhere in the world. And of course, it's also the inspiration behind my second incoming book, which will be a direct sequel to 101, but will be focused specifically on the new generation era. Both of these books explore many of the benefits that come with watching your professional wrestling as performance art rather than as sports entertainment, which as the title of my show implies, is, in my belief, dead. That's what these match explorations aim to do as well. And this week, we have another... This week, I'm very, very excited, guys, because I've landed at what I like to think of as a little bit of a coup here on Lords of Pain Radio. He's never been on a Lords of Pain Radio show before. It may very well be his only Lords of Pain Radio show ever, uh, knowing how busy the man tends to be. He is a legend at Lords of Pain. Whether you know him or not depends on how long you've been visiting the site, I suppose, or if you're in our forums or not. Uh, We had a little bit of a a rivalry, a number of uh, friendly rivalry, of course, a number of years ago. Um, He is my eternal nemesis. Assist, but it's a pleasure to have him on the show. Prime time. Welcome to Sports Entertainment is Dead. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Uh, whether or not it's the last time, I suppose, depends on how this goes. <laughs> whether we fall out or not. Yeah. Um, okay, well, uh, in just in way of an introduction, because you've never been on any of our LOPR shows before, and some people may not necessarily be uh, all that familiar with your work um, or your social media, um, you are, first and foremost, I think, is it right to say your favorite wrestler is Bret Hart? Yeah, yeah, and that's a safe, safe bet. And that you are um, a pretty old school. Uh, you've got a pretty old school mindset by wrestling, even by uh, by even by the standards of what a lot of fans today would call a thing that he was uh, a bit famous for, where he would uh, keep holds on as long as another one anytime soon. You know, it's like well, okay. if you can't call. I did once call Jim Cornette a dangerous modernizer. So. <laughs> That's how old school we're talking, guys. So wish me yeah. luck with these with these next two shows because prime time's going to be with you for the next two weeks. Um, basically, because he's such a Bret Hart fan, and I was such a Bret Hart fan as well for a long time, still am. Uh, we thought that for the next two weeks we would basically wax lyrical about one of, if not the greatest. 
to ever do it. So next week, we're going to be talking about a very famous uh, Bret Hart match, but we'll save that for then this week. Uh, a less a less well-known one, certainly a less well-watched one. Uh, we're going to be talking Bret Hart versus Hakushi uh, in the opening match of In Your House, the first In Your House, 14th of May, uh, 1995. Before we get into that, though, Prime, I was wondering whether you'd be willing to tell us all a little bit about why it is Bret Hart is such a favourite of yours. Uh, oh god that's going back uh, a long way um he was i suppose there was after years and years of watching the wwf as it was then it, what you realized after a while is he was always in the match that you remembered mm. yeah at the end of every show you kind of point back okay this match was good that match was good and you know the, whatever the two or three were he was always in there and so you just kind of started looking out for his stuff so much more and the body of work eventually spoke for itself uh, it's partly the timing. I mean, in the 1990s, I don't think anybody had that kind of body of work in the WWF. Uh, and the, being the only one was a, was a big thing. Mm. Cool, cool. Um, and, and so were you, were you watching, when this match happened in 95, were you like watching full-time at that point, so to speak? Uh, no, no, but only because I didn't have Sky. Oh, I see. Um, uh, so I was kind of watching in more of a I'll watch things when I can get my hands on them. Uh, well, and to were, compound that, you were fully sort of tuned into what was going on. Uh, yeah, yeah, as, as much as you could be at the time because um, you couldn't watch in your house live as a Brit. Um, there was obviously no pay per view uh, for the WF in Britain at that point, and it wasn't broadcast on Sky, so you had to wait for the VHS to be released. So if you didn't have Sky to watch Raw and then it wasn't even broadcast, really, the, the only live event that you were going to, someone was realistically going to tape for you was going to be, the what would it have been, King of the Ring in a month or so's time. Right. Wow. So so you were following it as closely as you could, mm. uh, but there was still, and a lot of that was magazines and things like that, you know, it's, it's a different era. Yeah, well, uh, but you follow it as close as you can, but there's still a world away from where I would have been six months later when it got Sky myself. And in 1997, when we moved to having all of the shows, uh, all of the big shows on a monthly basis. I think they started that with Revenge of the Taker. Uh, oh, that's just how late that was. Okay. Um, so thinking back to, well, if you can think back to 95, um, had you, did you see this match at the time? Did you see this show sort of roughly around the time or was it something you came, because I came to Bret Hart later in life. Like after you, you mentioned we didn't get all the shows till 97. I didn't sort of start tuning in because I kind of followed from a distance as well, read the magazines. My friend had videotapes and stuff and I knew Bret Hart with the ROH fans. Uh, but at the, the, the same time he seen 98, uh, so I came to most of Brett's career in retrospect. Uh, did you sort of see this roughly around the time this this event, this match? Uh, I saw I saw the match in 1995. I think I probably saw in your house one uh, a year or so after that right. in, in in full. But this match had enough of a kind of pedigree even then that you saw it separately. Wow. Okay, I didn't know that. Um, because it's not one of his... I mean, Brett has such a, a library of work, uh, and I think it speaks volumes the fact, you know, not to sound as bitter as the man sometimes does, but uh, <laughs> um, a lot of that library really hasn't been championed by the extent that I wish it was. Um, you know, you, you see their sort of 
fetish for promoting Shawn Michaels matches or Triple H matches or whatever the case may be. And, and Bret Hart rarely seems to get mentioned. His his most famous matches like the Ironman match or the Mr. Perfect match at SummerSlam or the Roddy Piper match at WrestleMania or, you know, the WrestleMania 13 match with Austin, obviously. Um, it's like everybody knows those. But then when you start to go down to the, maybe the next level, when you start to drill into a bit more where you get to matches like this one, like when he wrestles Jean-Pierre Lafitte, um, later on in the year, um, uh, Bulldog at the end of the year in '95. Mm. People don't tend to know those quite so well, which is one reason why, because uh, I suggested this match, of course, one reason why I suggested it is to try and bring it more to the wider audience. Um, and I don't know if you've had a chance to rewatch it before we've started recording the show, but um, certainly I was watching it the night before we we're recording the show. And although it's a match I've enjoyed previously when I have revisited it, sort of watching it with a bit of a closer eye, I, I found there was a lot more to unpick about it than I realised, and I, and I really got a thrill out of revisiting it again. Mm. Well, the thing is, uh, you know, you've mentioned a lot of matches there that Brett said, and we could have done this with practically any of his big matches in 1995. That's the, the truth of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a year that doesn't really uh, get a lot of love anymore. Um, and I think part of that is this in the mid card, there's a lot of weakness, a lot of directionless. Uh, but you look at what certain people are doing. Bret Hart's absolutely one of them in the two matches with Diesel, in the Jean-Pierre Lafitte match, in this match. And you can go on. And there's this tremendous amount of actual in-ring action. Mm. So, Well, it's interesting you mention that because uh, uh, as we record this, I'm, I'm working on a, uh, my second book, which will be specifically about the new generation. Um, and one of the elements that I intend to look at is, is character arcs, which I think was, uh, you know, for my money at least something that new gen did absolutely marvelously i mean if you if you go back and revisit it from 92 to 97 you 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 could be fooled into thinking that a lot of these character arcs were all planned out ahead of time because they just seem to run so seamlessly what one thing i love so much about 95 particularly as bret hart fan and it's kind of a cliche that they use to try and reset characters today where they talk about the new <laughs> quote the new more aggressive insert wrestler here uh, and in actual fact there's not really anything different about them at all they've just had a haircut or they've worn different clothes. Um, and but that was something that they were pulling with Brett after he dropped the title to Bob Backlund at Survivor yeah. Series because Owen cheated him um, they they really started to plug this idea that Brett was not so much coming apart the seams but that he was getting a lot more aggressive and a lot more forthright and he he was actually i think contestional hero that he might have been before that and that starts really in earnest with the royal rumble match with diesel which is one of my favorites ever not just of brett but of any match um and it follows him through 95 you watch his work in 95 you compare it to sort of 94 or 93 and it is and you mentioning um the fact that there's so much action in them i think it's, it's quite scary in a way he he sort of almost literally how Brett translated that into his ring game because he did start to wrestle I, I feel certainly more aggressively that year and I actually think you see it uh, in a lot of instances in this match with Hakushi one moment that struck me in particular was um, you know the, he starts wailing on Hakushi when I feel I wouldn't have seen him do in 93 um, when Shinja starts to interfere he suicide dives out to Shinja and starts nailing him on the outside I mean it's it's very very aggressive um, mm. and and this kind of parlays into or, or, or sort of siphons off into the Jerry Lawler feud or, or the reprise of the Jerry Lawler feud <laughs> if it ever ended um, uh, and I, I don't know how familiar you are with their match at King of the Ring uh, a month or so later but again that that both that match and the whole build to it 
because later in in your house at this event and he dedicates the matches to his to his mum because it's on Mother's Day which is a lovely little touch that I like and so he feels embarrassed that he lost uh, and you really see I mean he starts to act kind of like an anti-hero um, which is something that people more attribute to Sean or Steve Austin in 97 but you're seeing it with Brett in 95 and I think you see it a little bit in this match I don't know if you feel the same way I think it's part of a, a long-standing arc as you say it starts uh, with that Bob Backham thing and that's absolutely right um but if you see it as a, as a pattern, uh, you see it going on through the Hakushi match, through keeping Lawler in the sharpshooter to the point where the decision gets reversed. Other matches, but somewhat similar. They're choking the Undertaker at the Royal Rumble with the microphone cord. And so, you know, some of the domination of Shawn Michaels in the Iron Man match, there's, you know, he's much more aggressive than Shawn for long stretches of that. Yeah. Um, you end up at um, WrestleMania 13. Sorry, yeah, 13. Uh, against Steve Austin, all of a sudden the brutality that you've got there just makes perfect sense because yeah. it's a culmination of two years of this kind of fire, you know, building up. Yes. And so it's, yeah. It's so good hearing someone else say this for once instead of me bleating about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, talking about. You know me, Prime. I like to uh, to dig into um, or read into things in matches that aren't necessarily intended, but that I think stand apart as, as something special about them. Um, it's kind of what I've uh, built the last few years of my time at LOP on. And, um, when I was revisiting this from the off, um, what I loved was... So, so they... they they sort of play a brief video of how this match comes about, and it comes about because Hakushi attacks Brett during a, a a ceremony in which the Japanese media are honouring Bret Hart for all of his achievements, um, which is such simple storytelling, but I really like it, uh, resulting in this match. Nothing really much to that, but it struck me that it's it, it sort of... Because obviously that's just is any reflection on his talent, of course, really honouring Brett for his accomplishments, but it, it did sort of bring to the forefront of my mind the fact that Brett, as, who gets kind of a hard time as a as one of the top guys for a period in the company's history because the new gen obviously was kind of the company on the back foot um, certainly in 1995 um, that I think Brett is perhaps often seen as a Smith fan particularly as someone who does digest a whole range of different kinds of wrestling mm-hmm. um, I get you know Hulk Hogan was obviously or, or his predecessors or his, or his successors in that spot um, and certainly Ric Flair, for example, has been very kind of over the years, been very forthright in saying that he he, he wasn't much of an attraction or a draw. But he had, um, and you'll probably be able to talk to this better than I can, because as I say, I came to most of this in retrospect, but um, he always had a big international appeal, um, even if he didn't necessarily have a domestic one. But I'm, I, it strikes far too much these days, and it gets to a point where all the big guys wrestle like the little guys, and all the little guys are throwing big... I would say so. Uh, he had a bit of a issue when he first won the title having climbed to the top of the mountain uh, and people that had uh, followed him on the way. You watch some of the very early Raws in 1990. Brian size in this, uh, sorry, Danielson size in this kind of little bit food. So that baby face Bret Hart that we were they complicated that and made him more aggressive. That Bret Hart had some trouble in the first year or so. But at the time, like Roderick Strong picking author of Pain Up and throw him around in backbreaking. The WWF are ex- expanding into new markets, you know, much like the way that they have um, covered up their shortcomings as a draw. Eventually, 
um, there's there's a wonderful sense that usually you I'll start again. Usually in a wrestling match, the 1980s money in the US will open up other markets, and so that's where the tours to Germany, the tours to Kuwait, uh, all these other things came into it. And Brett was probably the biggest star in those places. Uh, the one thing I think that people sometimes forget about when they talk... So I, I love the fact that in that sense... Without Bret Hart and The Undertaker... Uh, ...traditionalist style of match... As ...is the thought. Without those four, the WWF goes out of business. They're the only people drawing. Yeah, yeah, quite. That's a good point. Uh, you know, it's not like the 1980s roster or the Attitude Era roster where there are 10 or 12 different people. And yes, Steve Austin and Hulk Hogan are the main draws. But there's lots of other people to get you pulled in. There's literally a handful of guys that are actually doing anything in terms of putting a crowd uh, in into these arenas. Uh, and it's well documented, I think, if you go back and look at the uh, the tours and the house shows, that when any of those are missing, uh, Brett in particular, because he often has the belt in these, these periods, people don't turn out. Mm. So I, I think that's the one balance you've got to have when you say, yes, they didn't draw as much, but where would they have been without them? And it's a really dark place then. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, then the outcome would have been different, and that's um, it's a feel. And my right side of the pond and good friend, uh, my right side of the pond host and, and good friend Maverick have long tried to uh, fight the good fight for getting people to reassess their opinion of this entire era, uh, because I think there is a, a lack of contextual understanding, and people tend to think, oh well, it, you know, they didn't make as much money because the product was awful, um, mm. and I, I couldn't disagree more with that opinion. One of the things that I love so much about the new generation, we mentioned it earlier, is the character arcs. But I also love uh, and how and how seamlessly they would transition from one rivalry into another. But also, I, I, I and again, I made reference, passing reference, this uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, I just loved the simplicity of the storytelling that they would do. They, it felt like because they were in a tough spot, they had to make the most out of what they had. Uh, and I think that it brought out a creativity in them that was a lot more disciplined than what we see now. Um, and that was really satisfying. And, and I think that this match presents something of a snapshot of that, particularly in Hikushi, who um, as a performer was obviously tremendous, but I, just the whole presentation of the character in this situation is something that I really like as well. And I, and I think that goes for um, uh, a lot of, of new gen characters. And I'm not talking the ones that people will mention as, you know, as, as, a downside. I'm not to WrestleMania weekend. There was a show where they would ignore, you know, these the or, or uh, knuckleball Schwartz, mm. you know. But you would you would get characters like a, a, a Hakushi or the one two three kid or you know perhaps uh, Dean Douglas or uh, Jeff Jarrett, and they could sometimes be a bit corny. I appreciate that, but there was always a great there was always a sense of great care being taken in how they were being presented, how they were being built. You always get got a very clear sense of identity from them. And one of the things that I love about this match in particular is I feel like um, I know if I'd never if I didn't know who Akushi was I would know exactly who he is coming out of this because he's through the match itself he's presented as something of an equal to Brett which match then is a, as a huge compliment to him it, just in its own right because Brett was the excellence of execution he was sort of the, the best scientific wrestler far too much false finish mm-hmm. um, 
I feel like anyway. Um, and Hakushi kind of goes. There's a, there's some symmetry in there. Hakushi goes toe to toe with him a number of times, but he also has a wonderful air of mystery. I, it's one reason why I always love Yokozuna as well, with who they went all in with in the presentation there. He has a great sense of, of mystery about him. The entrance, uh, Shinja at ringside, uh, the the sort of the the. I, 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 I've always thought that it was face paint that he covers himself in. I can't believe that they're tattoos. Um, so I don't believe I don't believe they are tattoos. No. But, uh, <laughs> no that's uh, what do we call it? That's dedication to a gimmick. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so his look and the, just the sense of attentiveness to the character detail is something that I really love about the new Jay. I think it stands out a lot here as well. Um, and it goes as much to you know to the to the foremost characters as it does to these kind of mid card characters as well. So you mentioned that you know there's only a few guys who draw, uh, and that's very much true. I I would wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, but I do feel like there was a lot of attention often paid to to um, let's call them incidental characters, sort of come passing through the company um, at the time, like an Akushi. Uh, and that really helps, I think, matches like this one stand out all the more as well, incidentally. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a, a big difference between the gimmicks like Akushi, like the one, two, three kid, like someone like Savio Vega, you can put in that bra- this bracket too. Mm. Uh, and the ones that you just mentioned, like the Knuckleball Schwartzes and Isaac Yankum, because those are basically masturbation. That, that, yeah. that, is, Vince, that is Vince McMahon's sense of humor. Uh, he's, he's amusing himself because although it's, you know, a dark time for the company. It's it's not as dark as it would be at the end of 1996 when they know they're in trouble. This is still a very complacent company. Uh, you know, does it ring any bells with the modern world that we've, you know? He, so he's amusing himself. Uh, you know, he finds uh, the idea of a, his, his baseball lockout amusing. So we get for wrestling, but he's so it, it's meaningless in the into it as well. And and I think he's even, different with Hakushi, who does have that air of mystery about him, as as you say. That's uh, added to by his, um, I think they call it pure rezo or lucha rezo. That's what they, you know, that kind of mixture of some of yes. the uh, lucha stylings with the with Japanese uh, traditional style. Um, you add all that together, you get a, something that we hadn't really seen a lot of in American wrestling before. Yeah, absolutely, um, and and you can see Brett relishing the opportunity to to put this match together as well, which is something I've always said that I think that you can tell when a performer is enjoying what they're doing and when their heart's not really in it. And I think it can make a world of difference. And you listen to Brett's interviews or you read his book or you, you spend any time sort of trying to get the note to know the man behind the character as much as any fan can. Um, and it always struck me that he was someone who relished, uh, you know, having the opportunity to uh, wrestle a different kind of match or a different kind of style um, to sink his teeth into, you know, a substantive character for an opponent um, who took of, of Kenta, I think, from when he used to wrestle in, in ROH. Um, and I haven't watched all the telling aspect of it seriously. I mean, there's a wonderful moment right at the beginning where Hikushi does all of his acrobatics and you see Brett kind of pull a wry smile, um, mm. which fits both... The story that they're telling, you know, you can you can accept that as part of the narrative that they're weaving. Um, 
sometimes more stark sometimes he's a performer who just seems to to love um but i th- in my experience when i've gone to watch matches like this cold i feel like them you know because the other thing about brace people always say he couldn't cut a promo and um you know it was it was a little bit rough in his early years as a singles guy but I, no i um that's that's all he's, he's he's pretty solid on a on a microphone he cuts a pretty solid promo before this match where he dedicates the win to his mother it's pretty straightforward he's going to go out there and beat hakushi and prove he's he's better but it suits his character it suits the story that they then tell which as i say on i think multiple occasions shows them as kind of um kind of equals but it's sort of disrupted a little bit by the sense that they're both unfamiliar with the other one um but that speaks to Brett as a performer. It's one of his. Uh... Have you ever seen the the documentary or interview? I don't know what to call it. They released where they had him and Sean do a lengthy sit down interview with Jr. They released it on DVD and Blu-ray some years back. Uh, the greatest rivals yes, or whatever it was. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And there's a really, it, and we'll talk a little bit more about this next week, I think. But um, there's a really was was, was uh, talking about the WrestleMania 13 match, and Brett kind of says in it that he didn't understand why he would want to wrestle Austin again because they'd already told a really great story at Survivor Series 96. And to me, that just encapsulates everything about him as a performer who put the the integrity of the storytelling before anything else. Um, and uh, on top of everything else I've just mentioned about his relishing for you know wrestling different styles and stuff, you get the sense that he really loved putting this match together and performing as well on this stage. Well, I remember... Another interview with uh, with Brett, which is a few years older now. I think it's even pretty um, where it was sort of a peek behind the curtain kind of video, but they weren't quite going there, there as yet. Um, and he said something on the lines of, I didn't want to be a wrestler. I wanted to be a film director. Oh. And that's all, that's always struck me um, about Brett. Is the, there's something really quite cinematic about his matches at their best. And then there's a clearer sense of story than with pretty much anybody else, I think. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I, this is one, one of those matches where I've jotted down various things uh, about how the match turns and momentum shifts are all built into key, key narrative points in a way that not everybody does. Sometimes it's just a random switch. And it's like, okay, yeah, someone else needs to have a turn now. It doesn't work like that with Brett. Then I look back on it and say, yeah, that makes perfect sense. That That's absolutely... To, to phrase it than I've ever phrased it with, um, one of the primary issues I always had with John Cena's matches, um, people, uh, as far as I'm concerned, ludicrously uh, refer to him as one of the greatest in-ring performers of all time. And it, it, to me, that's... Not against anyone. ...said is that oftentimes when I'm watching his stuff... You know, those shifts in momentum, they do, they just happen suddenly. And like you just mm. said, Brett always peppers them in. You know, they happen. They're, they're sort of teased out. Mm. And there's always a, a... Uh, the final boss, if you mean... No, something's happened that's going to make this match go in a whole different direction. Mm. And he'll have that control then if he, uh, until something else happens which swings it another way. Mm. It's, it's not just some sort of... As I say, that word random comes back to mind. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, was there anything uh, particular that you loved about this one? I like a lot mentioned? about it. I like a lot about it. I like uh, the fact that Hakuchi's athleticism is right in the foreground, but not in an unbelievable way. Mm. You know, he's he's even Intensely physical. Yeah. Um, stuff without it looking fake, which is a ridiculously difficult thing to do. Um, it doesn't even look far fetched the way um, of, you know. 
smile a minute ago because he yeah he doesn't he doesn't connect with that handspring, but Umbrella sort of looks like okay, I I, I know what I have to be aware of. And, it, it reminded uh, me of um, that that wonderful moment in um, Raiders of the Lost Ark where the guy with the sword starts whipping the sword around and then Indy just pulls out his gun and shoots him. <laughs> yeah, I get what you mean. What I was actually thinking of was, because um, Brett's great at this, is the moment in the what match with the 1-2-3 kid where he, he surprises him and you just see Brett on the mat just sort of below. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, quite yeah. impressed with that face. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he threw in lots of those little details that humanised him, I think. Yeah. Uh, because he was always something of an everyman in a way that uh hulk hogan was always larger than life you know you, you couldn't really imagine um hulk hogan overcoming the odds in quite the same way that brett did even when though you know you've got those matches against bundy and andre and it, that was always clashes of giants whereas brett was just a guy who was good at wrestling and so humanizing him was incredibly important sure yeah absolutely um Body language, I think, is is perhaps the key with him. And there's, yeah. a, there's a fantastic moment when he sort of starts doing his comeback. Um, and I've never spotted it before, but it really stood out to me when I watched it um, last night as a recording, which is... Um, and I can't remember how it's led into, but there's a wonderful moment where Brett sort of just jumps up on his fists. Um, mm. And it for, for just the briefest of seconds, he sort of just stands there with his fists loaded, um, sort of staring uh, Hakushi down, who's sort of, I don't know what he was doing at the time, maybe rolling on the mat or something. And it was such, uh, you know, just such a, a like a badass moment. And then he and then he, I think he clotheslines Hakushi and Hakushi does like a somersault to sell it. And it's just such a fabulous moment um, that, that, yeah. that just... I'm struggling to phrase what I mean, but it, it just really stood out as something where you go, because you refer to him as, a, as 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 an everyman, but there's also that sense of him still needing to be a hero, and it's moments like that that, that mark him as a hero. Yeah, yeah, it's the kind of, it, it's not the exceptional hero, it's the, it's the ordinary man driven to do exceptional things. Yes, that's a great uh, way to put it. And, you know, when he does sort of get to be that more aggressive version of Bret Hart and he comes off and he hits a clothesline and someone will spin inside out and Hakushi's great for that you know because he can do all that stuff and and he makes Bret look like a, a million dollars um, when you can do that there's a real lift in the whole match mm. um, one of the things I noticed is that it's it isn't the fastest match in the world by today's standards but I think that's actually quite a good thing um because it means that when they do speed it up, you get light and shade. Then the, yes. the match rises and falls, and there's a chance to kind of catch your breath and take in what's going on. Um, there's a moment for your brain to catch up with your adrenaline. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, uh, I think, again, another hallmark of, of Brett's work, sort of full stop, um, and is something that sorely lacks today. Mm. Uh, the The number of times that I will sit and watch you know and and you know i'm the biggest seth rollins fan at lop and but he's guilty of this sometimes as well as you'll sit and you know you'll watch a match and it and i'm and i'm sat there and i'm just screaming slow down just take a breath um, yeah and no, again, john, john, john cena's matches were particularly often bad for that especially that vile match he had with styles at SummerSlam one year um and those three identikit matches with kevin owens as well um and uh, I mean, you you are the architect of uh, the uh, I I forget the official name than the 
bullshit review i think it's called in the, the no the, bullshit the, review no bullshit review in the columns forum which if you've never checked out folks you really should they're fantastic reviews where it's a three striking out policy if you shout bullshit a match three times it fails yeah. um and uh such a simple uh, a simple measuring stick but a really effective one uh, people's threshold will often uh, differ on that bullshitometer um but it strikes me that um and i think it comes part and parcel of the fact that WWE don't champion more of Brett's work like this match with Hakushi. Um, the, the 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 kind of the average um, the average position of that bullshitometer for the average fan who has perhaps been reared in the in, on the product in the last say five or eight years particularly uh, or ten years particularly since Undertaker and Shawn at WrestleMania. Um, that's probably become a lot slacker and a lot more uh, uh, for most fans, I think. Uh, and I think perhaps it's because we're both Bret Hart fans that perhaps ours is is uh, you know our measuring stick for that is a little stricter, and uh, that that a lot of the stuff, particularly stuff I see in products like NXT, just doesn't fly with me anymore. And I find myself longing for the kind of just simple salt of the earth realism that you would get mm. in a Bret Hart match like this, because that's you know I always say there's a difference between an audience in wrestling reacting and emoting with what's reacting to what's going on and emoting with what's going on and I always felt with any Bret Hart match he was able to get the crowd to emote with what was going on and it's not just this sense of hollow kind of cheering because something dramatic has just happened and it's almost like an auto cue that that's the moment that you go crazy yeah people wanted in that era people wanted people to win I mean, that's the, the fundamental thing yes it was great if you got a good match on top of it as well but I mean it was much better to see whether the babyface win in six or seven seconds by upstaging the heel and making him look like an idiot than it was for the wrestle a 25 minute classic and the good guy to lose to someone dastardly that's something that people don't necessarily get now but no obviously if you're entertained in the 25 minutes you came back next week but it still wasn't as good a match in a weird kind of way yeah yeah uh and that's where the emotional connection is uh you know it's, it's tied to results but no one really cares about results anymore uh and, and sadly that also includes the wwe now i the, what you're talking about there with in tuesday mornings myself and my buddy jeff where we also talk about a lot of wrestling outside of the wwe uh new japan uh, they, they, I've realized that there is nothing for me. No one's ever going to want to appeal to a fan like me again. So what's the point in trying? Um, which is a sad realization, but it's one that you know you, you do eventually come to. Well, I, I'm desperately trying not to. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and on that note, folks, um, Prime, I could talk to you all day about this stuff. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Just as a as a closing thought, as we wrap this episode up, um, and it's it's a it's a big question that I'm about to ask you, but um, where in the uh, the the mythos of Bret Hart's uh, library of work uh, would you place this match with? A little bit of American. I'd probably put it not at the very very top tier, but in the next one down because I think there's a remarkable. Um, stylistic thing going on here where Brett um, effectively wins this match by counter-wrestling, for the lack of a better description. He starts to lie in wait. He uses Hakushi's speed advantage to his own advantage. And I'm a sucker for wrestling that plays off styles. And, you know, so often in Brett's career, that's reduced to 
oh, he knows how to wrestle a big man. You know, he can take Kevin Nash's legs away. But this is the proof, I think, that it goes way beyond that. And there's this whole extra thing. And if you watch it with a really close eye, I think it's brilliant for that. So maybe not in the absolute top tier, partly because of the, uh, you know, the amount of time it got and the amount of hype it got and all those various other things that really elevate a match to a top level uh, event. But certainly right underneath that. Stuff. Couldn't have put it better myself. I think I'd be inclined to agree as well. Um, thank you for coming on, Prime. It's been a pleasure to have you. You will be back with me next week, of course. Looking um, forward to it. And for those of you who are tuning in, uh, if you want to know ahead of time next week, we will be discussing the big one. It's going to be Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels in the WrestleMania 12 60-minute Ironman match, which we'll be trying to pick apart inside of 30 minutes. There's a lot oh. to actually dig into. Um, Do I have a lot to say about uh, that match? Oh, I look forward to hearing it. <laughs> um, so is there anything, just before we head off here, Prime, is there anything you want to plug, any columns you've got in the pipeline or any social media accounts or anything like that that people can reach you on, or, or are you good? Uh, you can follow me at LOP Primetime, but that's about all I've got to say, really. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Um, but if you do want to hear more from Prime, I do encourage you to come and check out the columns from him because he will drop a gem there every now and then, including a no-bullshit review, which is well worth the time to read. And I hope that perhaps he'll be encouraged to cover this match in the no-bullshit review uh, at some point in the future. Okay, maybe I will. My thanks once again to Primetime for joining me. He will, of course, return next week, so you can be sure to check that out. In the meantime, if you have any thoughts on anything we've discussed this week, reach me through the usual means. You can tweet me at LOP Plan, find me on Facebook, just look up Samuel Plan, or you can reach me, of course, at LOP Forums. Just sign up and be part of a great community there. Until next week, folks, I hope you stay safe and have a good one.